welcome to Find the Outside, the podcast. We are here today with the Equation Campaign, Katie Redford and Annie Plotkin-Madrigal, who you all are going to hear about all of the amazing work they're doing in climate and climate philanthropy. But also, I just want to say two delightful folks who are doing really hard work with, they're smiling right now, see? They're smart. They're doing really hard work. They care about climate. They care about bringing down the forces of evil. And they're smiling. And so I just want to say that out loud. So brilliant. And like, you know, at the outside, we really want to do this work in a way that is also joyful. And so mm. it's wonderful to have the two of you on today and just feel um, both your energy and your expertise joining us. Thank you. I've been told I'm going to get silence in answer to this question, but I'm going to try it anyway. <laughs> is there anything the two of you would like to, in addition to the lovely intro from Tuesday, which I already makes me curious and can't wait to dive into the pod. Is there anything the two of you would like either like to say about yourselves or your work before we kind of dive into conversation together? I will clarify that we are two members of the Amazing Equation Campaign team. Um, we're a team of four, along with two fantastic um, founders and can share more about them, but very happy to be representing this organization that means so much to both of us. And Katie, what might you just like, I know you have to give the elevator speech about what is the equation campaign all of the time. So maybe we'll just ask you to do it and then we'll just keep on moving. What is the equation campaign? Thank you, Tuesday. You know, it's funny that you say I have to give the elevator speech all the time and it's true and it's different every single time because there mm. are so many cool things about the equation campaign and it really just depends on when you ask me what I'm what I'm going to say. Um, <laughs> so uh, Annie and I often riff off e each other in these situations. So whatever I don't say, I know that she will chime in and help. So the Equation Campaign is a 10-year initiative. Um, we launched in 2020, as Annie said, founded by two members of the Rockefeller family who had already been funding and doing work in climate for decades. And as we all know, you know, there was a really scary IPCC report that came out in 2018, back when we thought that one was scary, telling us yeah. um, that we had essentially 10 years to cut fossil fuel and um, greenhouse gas emissions in half that we had until 2030. And so... Peter Gilcase and Rebecca Rockefeller Lambert decided that they would front load the lifetime of their philanthropy during those 10 years to mm. really try to fast track their own philanthropy, encourage others to dig deep, um, to do more now, and to actually meet the crisis with the scale, speed, boldness, and bravery that it really demands, um, that the science demands. And so we launched in 2020. We, as I said, we're 10 years. And I think the, the name, the Equation Campaign, really tells you two things. One, we are much more than a fund. We are a strategy. We are a program. We provide direct services. None of us who are on staff come from philanthropy. In fact, basically the only thing we knew when we started this together was what not to do as philanthropy wow. <laughs> because we've all been on the other side of the aisle doing fundraising and so 
So we come at this from movement activists, um, social change leaders, entrepreneurs, and I'm a human rights lawyer myself, um, spent my first 25 years suing oil companies and other corporate human rights abusers. And what we've decided was to fund what we call the missing piece of the equation, because the truth is, is that in the climate world, we have the science, we have the resources, we have the technology, we have even still the time that we need to do what we know we need to do in order to avert the worst of the crisis. But what we don't have is the power, mm. the power mm. to make it so. And that is because um, those with an incredible amount of power, and in this case, we focus on fossil fuel power, um, fossil fuel industry, they're blocking all of the solutions that we have and all of the things that we know we need to do every step of the way. And yet the vast majority of climate philanthropy does not fund work that directly confronts the industry. I mean, even, you know, we've had 28 cops, right? The, the conference of parties. And this last 28th was the first time yeah. that the word fossil fuels was mentioned. So the, the willingness to confront this industry head on has not been there in climate philanthropy. And that's one of the missing pieces of the equation. And the second is the frontline resistance, the communities and grassroots leaders who live where the industry is operating, where the industry is trying to expand, that live with the pollution, the disease, the marginalization, the poverty, the land destruction that comes with fossil fuel operations in your backyard. These communities are mostly black, brown, indigenous, poor communities, and they too have been missing from the equation of mm -hmm. the climate movement and certainly climate philanthropy. They're hit first and worst by both fossil fuel harms and often by the impacts of the climate crisis, but often last to be given a voice, given a seat at the table, and certainly funded to do this work. And yet, they've been fighting against this industry for decades, not through any choice of their own, but because it's a matter of life and death. They know how to do it. They've had outsized impacts and victories. Mm. Um, and these are the experts that mm. we believe have been missing from the equation in climate philanthropy and the climate movement. And so really that is what the equation campaign sets up, out to do is to confront, disrupt, and challenge the power of the fossil fuel in this industry by investing in the power of mm. frontline communities and the movements that support them. Mm. You see why I wanted to have them on? Do you yeah, see why yeah, I wanted no. to have them on, Tim? <laughs> I'm in. I'm in. Let's go. They're amazing. I'm in. Let's go. This Just is brilliant. Yeah, Annie, go on, go on, Annie, then I'll ask a question because I've got a question. To put a fine point on it, so our mission is to end uh, oil and gas extraction in the U.S. by 2030. We're focusing on the supply side of the climate equation and strategic work. So the overwhelming amount of climate philanthropy dollars, they go to demand side, which is incredibly important and not easy. Electrification, buildings, that whole part of the equation. Um, but supply side, where the extraction happens, where the oil comes out of the ground, 
um, is underfunded partially because it requires power building, um, mm. partially because it is difficult, partially because it's not palatable, right? We are You have to take down an industry that has a chokehold over our democracy and employs a lot of people, to be totally blunt, right? And it keeps a lot of people in business. Not as many as they say it does, though. Not as many as they say, exactly. And if everybody was driving an electric car tomorrow, but the fossil yeah. fuel industry and oil and gas industries yeah. weren't confronted and kept operating, they would yeah. keep extracting, right? So it's important to to help out at the source. I think a metaphor we've used before is if your basement is flooding, your immediate solution isn't to go buy more mops. Um, you want to plug the leak first and then you can clean mm. up the mess. The other metaphor sometimes you have to cut with both sides of the scissors, right? Demand is one side and supply is the other. All right. So I would say that certainly choose and I, but many of the people who listen to the pod and have listened to the pod for a while are in questions about how you engage with the dominant forces of power that exist within their communities, within their organizations, within their networks, you know, and, and it sounds to me like that you've very deliberately chosen to engage with and go up against one of the most dominant forces of power in the world in terms of the energy industry. And this is a ridiculously big question and I apologize for the size of it, you know, but maybe just kind of like lead us into your world a little, like what are you learning actually? about beginning to tackle power, establishment or established power in the way that you are. I mean, I I grew up in environments that were built around that type of power, you know, like institutionalized yeah. environments that produced CEOs of organizations like the one you're working with, you know, and I know what kind of places produce them and they aren't kind, you know, and of course, those leaders end up recreating those places as places of work. And so like, how do you how do you fight back? How do you navigate that kind of like, how, what are you learning about engaging power? I'm going to call on Katie because she's been at this for a couple decades and I think probably has seen arcs, evolutions, consistent themes. So it's my illustrious colleague. Okay. Um, well, again, it's, um, we're going to riff off of each other because it's not a simple answer. Right. Yeah. And so, but, but I think there are, there are some things we know for sure about how change happens and how power shifts because of how, you know, David and Goliath struggles have been won in the past and how transformational social change has happened in the past. Um, and then there are other things that we don't know because we have never been confronted, at least our generation um, and this, the, the climate, you know, movement or climate community as it exists now has not had to confront this kind of problem. So, so let's start with what we know, which is that, um, first of all, you need to have a power analysis to do this work. I think that um, one of the things that's been missing for a long mm -hmm. time in um, climate work is that power analysis. I think for many years, the strategy, which is completely logical, has been, okay, let's get the best possible science. Let's invest in really good science, really good research, really good data. Let's package it up and present it to governments and decision makers who have the ability to change law policy and move in the directions that the science tell us to. And then everyone will do the right thing, right? And 
We've spent 30 years or more investing in that science, and we've got incredible science that is crystal clear. And everybody hasn't done the right thing because of the power and the entrenched vested interests at stake. Um, So luckily, we have that science now. We don't need to worry about that. There's no debate anymore, right? Like we're not in the stage where it's like, oh, smoking's fine. It doesn't cause cancer or, you know, fossil fuels aren't the problem um, with the exception of a few ridiculous politicians, one of whom might become president in the United States, but we won't go there. The vast majority of people in power actually do agree on the science. And so if you then look to, okay, in order for those who do have government structural power to do the right thing, we need to get the blocks out of the way. And that is the fossil fuel interests, the fossil fuel corporations. Where does that power come from? It comes from their chokehold on the government. It comes from their absolute domination on financial systems and structures. That means subsidies from government. That means private investment. That means insurance underwriting, right? Like they have a whole lot of financial power. They just also have a lot of money. Um, They've had control of the media and the narrative for a very long time. And they've had, like I said, the the political power and legal power. So we break our work down in confronting their power through those four levers. Mm. So we fund legal work and litigation to directly confront the industry and to stop fossil fuels at the source. We're funding lawyers who are representing tribes um, who are trying to shut down pipelines on their land or stop new oil and gas infrastructure from coming onto their their sovereign lands. We're funding lawyers who are litigating in what's basically ground zero for fossil fuel expansion and the climate crisis, the Gulf South, Louisiana, Texas, um, litigating to protect sacred burial grounds of enslaved people from fossil fuel expansion because the industry needs land to be able to expand and do its work. And so that kind of litigation and legal work, that's one source of power that we're both confronting and needing the industry where they're dominating and also investing on the ground where where, um, folks are fighting in their home communities. Same on the finance campaigning, following the money, stopping the money pipeline, working and supporting groups that are actually trying to stop subsidies and shift subsidies of fossil fuels to renewables, um, to, you know, stop the biggest banks and underwriters of the climate crisis, Chase, JP Morgan, Morgan, BlackRock, from doing so. Um, Funding media and communication strategies, both to expose the greenwash and the fraud and, you know, the false narratives of the industry, but also to shift the the spotlight and the story to these folks on the front lines who I talked about before, who have been fighting the industry and winning and who are telling stories not about, you know, parts per million and greenhouse gases and this many gigatons, which is super important, but doesn't necessarily speak to broad audiences. But talking about, I'm fighting this industry because my kid's school is next to it and they all have asthma. Or I'm fighting this industry because my ancestors are buried here and I love this land and I love my community. And so coming at it with that power analysis and both confronting power and lifting up power 
is absolutely essential. And that's what we know. We know that works because that's what's always worked in any movement um, that you look at throughout history. That is how power has shifted. And then what we don't know are things like that aren't coming from our brain and our, you know, it's like, what do we know in our heart? Who is fighting from a place of spirit of what we call fierce love? And they might not have some big articulated strategy, but they're doing it because they have to and they know no other way of being. And that is an intangible that we're going to fund and try to unleash um, because we have to do things differently. And we certainly don't have all the solutions. If we did, we wouldn't be in this mess. Right. The quality of willpower that can come from the kind of space you're describing. Do you know what I mean? It's like there's no uh, there's no hesitation from yeah. that place inside of you. I love mm-hmm. that. Thank you. I think to pick up on like where Katie left off, right, is um, our grantee partners, right, are every day confronting the industry in the like interpersonal, in the same room, at hearings, in their neighborhoods, on their fence lines. And I think pull me back if this is a different direction than we were going, but like, what is it like for them directly confronting the industry? It's scary and difficult. And at the same time, like almost because things are in such close proximity, like quotidian in a way where it's like, this is what we're living with. This is what we're living with every day. This isn't like some far off distant thing for us. Like this industry employs, you know, my neighborhood, or at least like has big signs telling me that they're paying for the school And it's not always popular to be the person saying like, I actually don't want this expansion. Um, And when it, even when it is popular, you know, the industry say David and Goliath is almost like an understatement because they are scared of a mother who is fighting tooth and nail for their sick child. They don't have a response to that story. They don't have a counterfact to my child is breathing these fumes. There's a well 15 feet from their playground. And so they, while the climate, you know, mainstream climate movement might not take one person in one neighborhood seriously the industry does and they bring their resources to bear to that fight and katie maybe like just a point here about if this is putting anybody under fire so for the podcast recording so we don't want to put expose anybody but they the industry will come to people's houses who have you know raw you know runoff from refineries pouring into their living room and live and someone from the industry will come and say like how much did it cost to make you forget this or we'll go to uh an incredible organizer um, who has kids growing up in these same neighborhoods and impacted by the industry and industry professionals coming to their son and saying like, what's your favorite car? Hmm. What if I told you if you didn't go to college, I could give you this car. And when it's not just that interpersonal, it's through, um, you know, how much they're spending on legal cases, um, how much they're spending daily on comms and the millions for one pipeline in, in the Great Lakes. So it's, I think the combination of that willpower of like, I'm not doing it for a salary. I'm not doing it for promotion. I'm not doing it for fun. I'm not doing it because I feel like I should. I'm doing it because if I don't, my every, like what I love will be impacted or continue to be impacted. And then it's also scary and difficult because of what they're up against and how seriously the industry takes this kind of resistance. Yeah. If I can actually just um, to really like, don't believe Annie and I only about how afraid the industry is of frontline resistance and the folks that we are supporting at Equation Campaign. In fact, Moody's 
and Black and Veatch surveyed natural gas companies a few years ago and essentially asked the question, what are the obstacles to your ability to implement your expansion plans? And the two top answers were delays from opposition groups, i.e. equation campaign grantees, <laughs> mm. and, um, and regulation, which who's demanding more regulation? It's the people who have to live with the impacts of the immediate impacts of fossil fuel expansion, right? And so they're telling us that this is what threatens their ability to expand more than anything. Or put another way, this is what prevents their ability to keep warming the planet. So that's what they say is the biggest threat to their climate changing activities. That's what we should be funding and doing. And those are the experts, the climate experts, who we think are the climate experts, that we should be listening to because they're the ones that have been fighting against the industry and winning. And we, the rest of the mainstream climate movement who have been doing great work in Washington, in Dubai, in Copenhagen, in New York, all these years, that's a different kind of expertise. And we need to be listening to the experts on the ground who know how to how to fight the industry. Um, the industry has a term for it called getting standing rocked. Huh. Oh, wow. Really? They don't want to. That's the thing they want to avoid. They want to avoid getting standing rocked. Yes. Or the keystone effect. And wow. what that means is frontline, powerful resistance from people who live where these projects are backed by lawyers by media mm -hmm. strategists, by finance campaigners, by folks inside and outside the beltway. But it starts with the power on the ground. So if they don't want to get standing rocked, we're going to standing rock the crap out of them. I love that there's actually terms for it. That makes me <laughs> so, so delighted. And also, Katie, as you started speaking, I could feel... Um, that people can feel like the issue is so big when we talk about working with power, right? Like how challenging it's like, well, if I don't see myself as having any power, then how do I engage in the halls of power? So it's like, oh, I wonder how we how we might move people to see their power. But then Annie, as you were giving examples and Katie, as you spoke again, I'm like, oh, oh, right. We actually do have the power, right? We may not have a power analysis, which I agree with you in so much movement space is just kind of the the only power analysis is you have it. I don't, what am I going to do? Um, so, you know, like something more sophisticated analysis, but it's actually really hopeful to hear you all speaking about the power of folks in the communities to make change. And I'm curious because those are human beings with spirits and families and needs and, and, and are able to be exploited because of the stress in the community. And I'm curious what you're seeing is helping to shore them up, to protect them. I can imagine protection. Like you all didn't say anything, but I could imagine that if someone's willing to kind of come into my house and say, what's the amount of money just to, for you to forget this? If I'm like, I won't forget it, then things could escalate, right? So like, what is the what is the way you're learning to help people shore, how you're showing people up, how they're showing themselves up, how they're shoring each other up? Like, what does that look like? I don't want to oversell like what we're doing and I won't, it's not sufficient, right? Like people are under stress. It's been 
difficult decade, several years, right? Um, but it is something that we are extremely sensitive to and appreciate and like what our particular role is as Equation Campaigns as, as funding partners. And so some of the things we try to keep in mind, not that it's addressing this whole issue, is um, we certainly like start with practicing trust-based philanthropy, right? And we lean heavily towards multi-year and general operating support. And when we ask organizations, led often by just like one individual or two, right? Like, and who else do you need to be successful? Because there's also this, we don't want to have like the toxic individualism of like, okay, mm-hmm. you are so wonderful. You've achieved so right. much. And so now it's all on you. So that's right. another thing. And we do invest in ancillary mutual aid directly. We are very quick to ask, you know, mutual aid, who's running it? How much do you need? Um, we also like some of the less sexy stuff, like making sure if people want fiscal sponsors, showing up fiscal sponsors that are culturally and regionally appropriate, just yeah. trying to, from our particular angle, decrease the burden to the extent possible. And then of course that rolls into our grant making processes, which I won't bore folks with. But as we said earlier, Equation Campaign, hence the name, is more than just a fund. And so we do try to offer certain programming and additional supports. And one of our hallmark high priority ones is uh, legal defense. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think it cannot be overstated that the climate crisis is obviously an existential threat to humanity. And challenging fossil fuel power and actually doing what the science says we have to do is an existential threat to that industry. The the fossil fuel industry does one thing, right? It burns, exploits, extracts, sells fossil fuels. Like the planet and the industry cannot exist at the same time. It's like Harry Potter and Voldemort, right? Like, and (laughs) (laughs) one cannot live while the other. (laughs) And so the point being that they know that their existence is at stake as well. Mm -hmm. And they are fighting like a beast that has been gored, but has not been killed. And we know that an injured animal or an animal that is fighting for its survival or protecting its young is going to fight as fiercely as it possibly can. And They absolutely are. And so the industry has a playbook for retaliation um, and they have a war chest that goes into it. And again, like this is on one hand overwhelming to think about, but on the other hand, it's not because we know what they do and we know how to, to confront it and meet it. And this is the kind of thing that actually resources and money can help with. There's a lot of things that money can't help, but... Um, protecting people from backlash and retaliation from the industry is actually a place where where money is is quite useful. And so we are very um, intentional and have funds set aside, knowing that if we are supporting communities on the ground to challenge and confront and disrupt this industry, that we are essentially funding them to mm. put a, a, a bullseye on their back. Right. And the industry you know, depending on where you live and what you look like and who you are, and not just in the United States, but all over the world, the threats come in different shapes and forms, but they tend to 
come in five categories. There's physical threats, um, you know, death threats, assault, all of those things. Um, there are legal threats, uh, you know, increased criminalization, arrest, slap suits. There are financial threats, the kind that Annie was talking about, either, you know, like, hey, can we bribe you? Or in the context of NGOs, we're going to go after your IRS status. We're going to shut you down and not let you have the ability to receive funds. There are psychological threats, which comes in the form of trolling and smear campaigns and the youth climate movement. There's a lot of online bullying that the industry mm. is. I mean, there's online bullying everywhere, but the youth are particularly vulnerable to that. And then there's digital threats, you know, hacking, surveillance, technology, all of that. And so those five categories are sort of the playbook and we need to have our own playbook as well. And mm -hmm. it starts though with acknowledging that if you are being effective at confronting and disrupting this industry, then you will face retaliation and backlash. And so we know that in advance. That's sadly, I guess, a good thing. So we can prepare for it. We can pre-position resources, training, and support. And we do at Equation Campaign. And this is a place where within philanthropy, we really do try to bring in other funders and educate and what we say, lead by example. Um, because I think particularly in climate philanthropy, as opposed to human rights philanthropy, retaliation and risk is a relatively new phenomenon mm. because it has been so focused on science, policy, mm -hmm. you know, litigation, government action. I mean, I wouldn't like to be against you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean it. Just like being on the call with you, you know, I wouldn't like to be against you. Uh, and, uh, and, and there's some kind of steel in you both, you know. There's some kind of like incontrovertible, inexorable something in both of you, the way you talk about the work and the way you talk about how you work with others. And, and, and I bet that steel, that, that incontrovertible, inexorable will is reflected in many of the people you fund, you know, would be my instinct, you know. And, um, but I'm just interested where that comes from in the two of you. Because it's really, I mean, I haven't met you Tuesdays, known you for a lot longer than me, and I've just been sitting on this pod and watching and listening to you. And, and uh, But it's really apparent to me, you know, and I'm, I'm just curious where it, where it comes from. What What is that thing that I'm just picking up only having just met you? I think for both of us, we have direct personal experience yeah. um, with injustices people face at the hands of um the industry or forces like the fossil fuel industry. So yeah. people often ask me like, where, what job did I have before? And I've had some great roles, but um, really where I feel like my background for this work comes from is my whole life. I mm. grew up in a house uh, with two parents dedicated to indigenous land rights in the Amazon and um, displacement mining um, extraction was something that, you know, we have dear friends and, and chosen family members who experienced the full range of from displacement and bribing and the effects of living in an extremely stressed community to um, murder uh, for standing up for their communities and land rights. And so for me, it's not a theoretical fight, right? It's not a theoretical injustice. And I, I like to believe this work is like 
in my in my blood very much um and i'm very very passionate uh and katie does as well yep same here i mean i think that um i think you really nailed it annie when you talked about this not being a theoretical issue for us these are you know when when i think about the injustice of the climate crisis i'm not thinking of a bar graph or a bunch of numbers i'm thinking of people that i know um families that i know communities that i know um and like i said at the beginning i mean i i came from a career as a human rights lawyer where I represented communities um, and individuals who had horrific human rights abuses, um, who were survivors and witnesses to horrific human rights abuses at the hands of fossil fuel companies and other corporate human rights abusers. And so um, these were my clients. These were my friends. My, My husband is from Burma. And um, so I've spent a lot of time in in war zones, um, in refugee camps, in um, in communities that are living with the injustice of corporate power and abuse. And so, when we are doing our jobs and we're sitting at our desks at Equation Campaign, and you know, getting through our day, it is um, with I think the the wind beneath our wings of these people who are um, confronting it on the ground and who we know, who we love, who we have relationships with, who we learn from. Um, We say that at Equation Campaign that our kind of way of being and working in the world is a combination of head, heart, and hands. And um, that really means like we do have this, we think, incredibly sophisticated and winning strategy um, mm. that we talked about earlier with the power analysis mm. and all these strategic levers, finance, can you know, comms, legal, but then also tapping into that like immeasurable power of fierce love and people fighting for what they love and fighting to protect what they love and seeing that and and knowing it and funding it and supporting it. And then the hands piece is actually being on the ground with Mm. them. We do, we go to the places where our, where our grantees are are fighting and struggling. Like Annie said, we practice trust-based philanthropy, which means we don't make people write proposals to convince us that they're worthy of our grant dollars. We, we go there because first of all, that's a waste of their time. We need them to be fighting fossil fuel companies, not like you know, writing stuff for us. Um, and if we go and see it, we feel like we can be better supporters, but it also gives us strength and, mm. um, and courage and energy to keep going because yeah. you never forget that. I'm so glad you brought that in, Katie, because I was thinking, you know, Tim is just meeting you all today. And so of course he's wowed by like, you know, your brilliance and you're still and like, good, that's great. Like you like, look, I'll just say it because it's true. And I know you in a different way, right? I know you um, through a racial justice community of practice in climate philanthropy, where yes, your uh, certainty and skill and steel is evident, but also what you don't know 
leaning into each other, figuring out what's next, asking questions that don't have easy answers is kind of the way that I came to know you. And so I'm curious what you might say, I, I don't remember which of you said something about different ways of knowing or knowing in the body. Like what are, yeah, what are some different ways you're beginning to concept, move, strategize, like that's a little more in the realm of unknown? <laughs> <laughs> But what the listeners don't know is that Katie just pointed at Annie. I was like, that one's that one's to you, mate. You know, that was what that's what just happened. You know, <laughs> I think so. Here's one thing. I think as like former slash current practitioners, as organizers, activists, formerly chronically underfunded folks, um, and I'll say like as you know, from our positionality in life. Um, I think both of us come to the work with a lot of appreciation for what I think is called like anecdotal evidence, mm. right? Like when we're talking to partners and strategy, like we're not trying to hear about this pipeline has more than, you know, is going to admit this equivalent of GHGs and all these things. That's important, right? But I think somebody saying like, this strategy came together in this way. I believe in it because I've done this before. Like we're just, I think we're pretty comfortable coming to the work with a feel for, um, appreciation for like the anecdotal, the mm. story-based, mm. the personal-based. Um, we're lucky to have um, a f- co-founder who has a background in land-based learning mm. and like nature-guided kind of intuitive wow, learning. Cool. And she's, yeah. So we've implemented that at Equation Campaign and that's certainly a newer um, frontier, I'll say for me, and certainly a place of, if not like, I think wisdom in the sense of it brings about a whole other set of questions, right? Like humility, not knowing the answer, quiet space, um, and folding it into a mix of kind of discernment that appreciates the very thing that, you know, we're absolutely trying to protect humans. And we're also trying to protect the rest of our like natural family, right? The earth and trees and and non um, human animals. Um, so that's, that's a, that's a frontier for us. Um, Katie, is, what would you add to that? I yeah, I think I want to just sort of double click on the um, on the different ways of being learning and knowing or not knowing. Um, I mean, for sure, you know, I'm a, a lawyer, so I'm very comfortable, and I'm kind of in my own like <laughs> environment when I'm in my head, um, and so it's not um, my go to. As um, one of our co-founders will say, like, well, if you're struggling with this question and you don't know the answer, go on a walk for three hours in silence and nature and ask the land. Mm. Like, that's not something they teach you in law school, for example, (laughs) (laughs) at least least where I went. There's not a module on that? No, no, No. there's not. There's not. And so, and it works. You know, mm. like I, I am someone who's like, well, all right, I'll try that. But if it doesn't work, I'm not going to do it again. Or, you know, like, and, and so there are, that's just one example. Um, but we started out, um, our, our co-founders, um, Peter and Rebecca, who kind of come at the doing things differently from, from different ways of doing and being Peter, um, is also like, look, we've got to try a lot of new things because if we knew what the answer was, we would just do that and the problem would get solved. And so 
we have sort of like a, we should just throw a lot of spaghetti against the wall and see what mm. sticks. And there is a real openness to that kind of innovation, try new things, do things differently. But um, it kind of gets summed up in a quote that we say a lot at Equation Campaign. And I think it's attributed to Einstein, but I'm not sure if he said it first, which is, you know, you can't solve problems by doing the same thing that caused the problem in the first place. <laughs> and so... Clearly, our strategic brains got us to this problem, right? Like capitalism as like an idea and like let's, you know, all the other things that are connected to that. Um, so we need to get ourselves out of this problem by doing things differently. Um, and I think that's that's really important. Um, and again, d- listening to different experts. Mm-hmm. I really think you cannot say that enough because as much as you two are probably convinced by Annie and I talking about our strategy and who we're funding and how brilliant they are and like not everyone in philanthropy um agrees that those are the right experts right. or thinks that that is what they should be doing. There's a real emphasis in climate philanthropy on measuring, well, in philanthropy in general, on measurable impacts. Mm -hmm. And in in climate, it's like, okay, how many dollars did you put in for this many gigatons of greenhouse gas reduction? Can I just say, like, I feel like that goes right back to the initial conversation around power analysis, because I feel like power will also always ask for more information, more data, more measurement, right? So we believe that that collection is actually action, right? <laughs> like just like just like getting the data or kind of like making the point or proving the case is actually action, which if we have a more robust power analysis, that often is just like us spinning our wheels. You all, we already know. We say this to clients all the time. We think you already know. Like I, you know, I, we know that you're saying to us that we need to like get more surveys and do this, you know, like we tend to work on the human part of systems, but like we think you already know, there's probably been 40 years of reports you could just look at rather than, but it feels like it's a way for people to feel like they're in action without actually brokering power, right? Because power will just say more information, more information, feed the beast. I see you all nodding. That sounds like it lands. Yeah, totally. A hundred percent. I think also, I can't remember if this came up in the community of practice or or elsewhere. But um, for us, a lot of what we see is that measurement stands in as a proxy for trust. Can Ah. I trust you to do, do I trust that you're going to do this work well? Or am I out so distant from a relationship with you, so distant from the work that you're doing, so removed from my own conviction, maybe that this is the right thing that I need this type of like, data, right? This like hegemonic understanding of what means something's working to stand in for that. And not only that, like there's also, you know, that will also make me look good to whoever else is on further up the power structure that I see. And so then it's about who can gain that trust, right? It's folks that have development teams, which means that they can raise money for their research teams which means, and those people can gain a bit more trust. They're still not fully trustworthy, right? Because they're still going to be demanded of all that information. But who's really not going to be trustworthy, which just so happens to overlap with race, class, gender lines, geography lines, and pedigree lines? 
Well, for, first of all, I want to say that like when you talk about consulting the experts, go take go and taking a three hour walk in nature is like consulting one of the most smart experts out there that I've ever encountered. You know, what I mean, talk about an expert on nature and talk about an expert on survival and talk. I mean, like I just love that as a core practice and and in your work. I mean, it just it really speaks to me on lots and lots of levels. And thank you for sharing that. And but this the kind of lack of relationship thing or the or the quality of relationship. And I know we're getting near time choose, but but it is is like there's a fine line there, right? Because on one side, it's like, oh, actually me not having a relationship with someone makes me objective. And therefore I'm able to make an objective judgment on this circumstance, which is in many ways a uh, you know, that's how I was trained as a young man going to private school in the UK, is that you like, you actually remove your empathy from the situation. Mm -hmm. And it is the removal of your empathy that allows you to make the best decision possible. Right? Yeah. And of course, you know, British private schools were set up to educate colonial leaders. That's what they were built to do, right? And so, that, so there's, there's a real story around how the lack of relationship. And so the counterbalance to that is we enter into relationship. And we build relationships. And in those relationships, we make decisions that are more rooted in the real needs of people, but are more mutual. They're less transactional. They're, I mean, all of that kind of stuff. Yet on the other side of that is that like so much of the abuse of power is rooted in nepotism, isn't it? It's rooted in people like doing things for people they like, doing things for people they love. I mean, it's like just even where I live in Nova Scotia, it's like, it's the same fucking family that's been in power for how long in your community? You know what I mean? And it's like, really, the mayor's had the same surname for how many generations, right? And so there's something in this, right? Can you just speak to that a little for me, that kind of tension that I'm pointing at? I have an anecdote that comes to mind, which is at the outside of Equation Campaign, we were building our board. We needed a board structure. Um, and what's today our strategy and solidarity board, which is made up of um, frontline or climate justice experts yeah. who kind of make sure that our strategy is in keeping with um, movements on the ground and in solidarity and that we're, you know, working towards achieving our goals. And um, we really wanted to make it feel, you know, we wanted to not be trapped in the, like, what people do before is what we'll do now. We'll just inherit those structures. Um, but we really wanted to make it, you know, work for us. And, and so we had a um, some great folks come and help us kind of build this structure. And at one point we got to the question of, well, should we, a lot of our grantees are the people that we respect most and want their vision most, but is it a conflict of interest to have them on the board? And uh, Simon Mott, who um, was helping us with the meeting um, and Tamala, they asked us back the question. They're like, do you think there's a single board in climate philanthropy that doesn't have conflict of interest on it? Yeah, right. Right. In terms of like family right. members, they were just like, when does conflict of interest suddenly become the problem? Right. right. And then help, helping us, you know, reframe that like conflict of interest can also seem be proximate when appropriate as, um, you know, proximity and relationship and, and accountability in a certain sense. Yeah. I think um, also this sort of like myth or overemphasis on objectivity is yeah. along those lines. It's like, no one is objective. No one is truly distant. Everyone comes with their own experience, values, networks, friends, all those things. And, um, you know, as you were, as you were speaking, I was, um, I was like, did you read my book? Cause I wrote a book that, um, called 
The Revolution Will Not Be Litigated that was published last year. And um, it was kind of like the book that I wish I would have had in law school, sort of mm. like, you know, not, not mm. everything you need to know to become part of the the system and preserve systems and structures of power, but like what you need to know as a lawyer to like transform, overthrow, disrupt power. And at the end, I have a, um, you know, rules for radical lawyers. And one of the rules is you are not objective and stop pretending that you are. And if you are going to be a radical movement lawyer, you need to care. You need to not be like, oh, I have to have professional distance and I can argue any side of this issue. No. If you're going to argue something that you don't believe in, then get out, right? Like that is not helpful in, you know, system changing movement work. And so like... For philanthropy to, or for anyone to say like, well, I'm just doing this because it's the right strategy. It's following the science. It looks good on paper. The measurements and the check boxes are all there. Like that is a myth, I think. And and again, it hasn't worked. It hasn't gotten us where we need to go. I mean, if you want to (laughs) measure... success on climate and the billions of dollars um, that have been expended so far, look at 2023 being the hottest year on record. There's, there's, we're not going in the right direction. And so we need all of those things that people have been doing. It's not to say that that is wrong. It is to say it is not enough and there's something missing. And our premise is that what's missing is corporate power, confrontation, disruption, and, you know, name, say the F word, people, fossil fuels, right? Like we cannot <laughs> have, <the> one. yeah, <laughs> I mean, again, I said it already, but it's just incredible. 28 global climate conferences that never mentioned the word fossil fuels. And by the way, neither, neither did the Green New Deal. So again, that just shows you how much this industry has invested to keep itself out of the climate equation. We've got to put them into the climate equation and we need more people in philanthropy to join us. We are excited for people to join us. We obviously are fabulous people and super fun to work with. And so um, we are (laughs) calling people in. And and we need more funding of the experts on the ground in the communities who have been fighting against this industry and winning because they know how to do it. They're closest to the harms. They're closest to the solutions. We have so much to learn from them. And so those are the missing pieces of the equation. We need the stuff that's been funded because we just need, we need all hands on deck from every direction. Thank you. I have a quick question. Oh, yes, please. This yeah. is such a bummer. This is such a bummer. I just wanted to know if I could go back and give um, appropriate credit to the folks on our board that I mentioned because I left off Tamala's last name and I want to make sure that I offer that. Please. Okay, Please. great. Um, so the folks who helped us um, rethink, uh, you know, an amazing board structure, the folks at Harmonize Consulting to Simon Mont and uh, Tamala Gresham. Great. Thank you. Appreciate that. 
This feels like a good place to wrap up, although I didn't get too many questions I had. So maybe we could have you back in season seven, uh, just like opening Ooh, that door. Could we? That'd be awesome. And But I do want to leave with, you know, like you, you both speak so compellingly about what you're doing, what you're up against, needing people to join you. And so I just want to ask, like, as we close with this question, like, what keeps you going? Is there a quote, a poem, a, a thought, a song, something that like helps you dig deep and like keeps you going? Bit of back pocket wisdom. Yeah. I, um, we talk about this a lot Tuesday in our community of practice, right? Like that, that, um, the climate crisis can be so overwhelming and it is so overwhelming because it's literally like everything is at stake and it's kind of like the apocalypse and an existential threat and all these words that are so scary. Um, and yet we are constantly reminded by you and Gibran and also by our grantees that um, there are communities and people who have survived many existential threats and apocalypses before you know, in the United States, I mean, Native Americans and indigenous people and African-Americans, black communities, black folks. And one of our grantees who's also on our board, who your listeners probably know not because of his work on climate and fighting fossil fuels, but because he was one of the Tennessee three, um, Justin J. Pearson. Wow who um, most people don't know, uh, cut his teeth fighting the Bihalia pipeline in Memphis, Tennessee, and organized a Black community um, against a massive, incredibly racist um, sighting of the Bihalia pipeline and talk about David and Goliath and defeated the pipeline, which was canceled 11 months after Justin and his communities wow. organized and, and resisted. So like this stuff works. Um, but Justin J. Pearson, we got to know him because of supporting his work, fighting this, this pipeline in his community. And he says, um, you know, I'm going to paraphrase this, but he's like, look, my people have survived being kidnapped from our homelands, brought to this country, enslaved, the, you know, Jim Crow, the civil rights era, all the things being expelled from the Tennessee legislature, all of these apocalypses and existential threats that we have been through. And you know what? We're still here. And the front lines are never going to lose because the front lines will never give up. Mm. And so that keeps me going. Because it's so true, it is scientifically proven and historically <laughs> accurate, and I will follow Justin wherever he leads me. Mm, thank you. Yeah, Justin's quote and that spirit is certainly what, what keeps us going. And as a team, I think um, to put a bit of a like reframe or like a different entry into this question is what keeps me up at night. Um, and it's mm -hmm. a quote from Michelle Mascarenhas Swan, who's um, a co-founder of Movement Generation um, and a movement leader who like, I would say like 80% of the words out of her mouth give me goosebumps. Um, but I remember her one time talking about like, you know, permanently organized communities and what does it look like to win? And and she said, and um, 
I haven't been able to like find this quote online, so I'm attributing it to her. She may reattribute it. Um, but if we aren't prepared to govern, we aren't prepared to win. And so look, we look at this time horizon of winning a campaign, but what does it look like to win the future, right? Like, what does it look like right. to win justice? And are we prepared? Yeah. I'm going to take that. Yeah. Annie, going to take that one with me. That's that's a big deal. What you just said. <laughs> it's a big deal. It's a big really deal. Is. It really is. What an incredible delight to have both of you on the pod. Thank you so much for giving like of your time and your insight and your story over the last, I don't know, it feels it was, I think it was about an hour. We just an hour we got to spend together. So just like, I just feel outrageously grateful. I mean, I'm not meant to say things like this, but this might be one of my favorite pods that we've done. I mean, it's not just the words you say, it's like how you're turning up and how you're working, <laughs> bouncing off each other. And it's, I mean, truly, truly, uh, uh yeah, it's been a remarkable for me just to spend an hour with you. So thank you so much for coming on. Oh, that's beyond reciprocated. We're such big fans and so grateful to have you all as yeah. allies and friends and in, in the work. Um, and I don't know, I think this might be an inaugural non-explicit one. I didn't hear any. <laughs> <laughs> that's I right. Drop one now if you want. I can drop one now. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we'll play Bad Bunny on the out, like on the out. It was and so we can... fucking great spending this hour with you guys. There we go. <laughs> there yes. We go. Yes. There Fuck yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and I love Tim. I, you might not be able to tell that we are very competitive. And so we like that we are winning the podcast. Yes. <laughs> love that. And if we're not Excellent. in first place, have us back and we'll, we'll, we'll start training because... <laughs> I'm about to go coach a girls team and they're playing in a they're playing in the league of mostly boys teams in indoor futsal this year. So like yes. we're gonna go give it. We're gonna go beat them all. Yes, you are. Kick some ass. Now I got to Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you both so so much. Thank y'all. Thank you. Appreciate Take it. Care.